we also have to build tolerance to doing unfun things. And we have to sort of teach that. We have to teach tolerating the no and tolerating that we have to do that. A three-nager is defined as a three-year-old having traits similar to that of a teenager, showing lots of attitude, defiance, a strong will, and a rebellious nature. If you put the word three-nager into Google, the drop-down bar will reveal queries like how to survive a three-nager, what is a three-nager, and maybe most surprisingly to me, a lot of three-nager birthday party ideas. So whether you use it as a term of exasperation or as a celebration of sass and newfound independence, there are some unique parenting strategies that are particularly helpful when parenting three-year-olds. Back on the podcast to offer guidance and support to a listener asking for help navigating this with her son is Dr. Emily Upshur, a clinical psychologist and the co-founder of our joint practice, Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Pelham, New York. So stick around to hear exactly why this phase of development is marked by a desire for autonomy and control, and there's a neurological explanation for that, and also for strategies you can use to support your child's development while engaging in fewer battles and power struggles. Do you sometimes feel like what you're doing to try to support your child's big feelings and dysregulated behaviors isn't working? Or worse, it's adding fuel to their fire? This month, I'm excited to invite parents in New York State to join me in a new parenting group I'm running. Over the course of eight one-hour group sessions, I will help you understand exactly what is happening in your child's brain and body when they're acting out, strategies for effectively parenting in these tricky situations, and how to be flexible and nimble in your parenting so you can adjust your approach and be attuned to your child's needs at any given moment in time, even if you're not going to meet those needs. We'll be tackling everything from establishing secure attachment bonds, learning how you can stay calm when you're feeling triggered, addressing tantrums, power struggles, and effective discipline strategies, and combating parental guilt and burnout. The group will be limited to eight families, so everyone will have plenty of time to ask questions, troubleshoot events from the week, and get personalized support from me during the group meetings. If you're interested in learning more about this eight-week group, which is ideal for parents in New York State of children between the ages of two to seven, email sarah at drsarahbren.com or go to upshabren.com forward slash contact to schedule a free 15-minute assessment call to see if this group would be a good fit for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Securely Attached. I have a listener question for us today. This is from actually a former student from The Authentic Parent, which is my course for parents of zero to one-year-olds. Now her child is a bit older and she's got some questions. So this This person wrote in, I was curious if you have any resources or podcasts for defiance and attitude. 
All of a sudden, we have a three-nager on our hands who thinks he runs the show. Lots of no's. I won't do that, etc. I know we have all been there, but so many of my friends are going through this, and I thought I'd ask for all of us. I hope you're great. Loving your podcast. So to answer this question, to weigh in, I have asked our beloved Dr. Emily Upshur from Upshur Brun Psychology Group to come and share your wisdom with us. Hi, Emily. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. So you have plenty of experience with this three-nager <laughs> stage, right? You've got three. I, I, all, I've been through it three times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm in it. I went through it once. I'm in it right now. <laughs> so there's a lot of empathy for for this mom and everybody out there who's got a kid who does these things. And I, yeah, I mean, I think first I just want to validate. It's really hard at this stage when you are getting this much resistance and this much, you know, desire to be in charge. I mean, I think, and we'll get into this, I think in our conversation today that it's, it is developmentally normal. It's even developmentally healthy. It just is really hard and frustrating to be on the parenting end of that relationship. Yeah. You know what? I think it's so funny because I think why it's hard is because their competency doesn't match their autonomy. Right. And so it's such a funny thing as a parent, because you're, you're frustrated by that gap in skill. Right. And they're trying to close that gap by asserting themselves, but it is difficult because sometimes, you know, the things they're saying no to, or that they want to do, just they're not able to do yet. So it makes it really difficult for us as parents to see it, you know, in their point of view, which is sort of illogical. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I think maybe even just explaining a little bit about like where the brain is at, at this stage of development might be helpful because I think, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you may have heard us talk about the prefrontal cortex and its development, but it's the part of the brain that is responsible for a lot of these sort of planning, inhibition, rational thinking, problem solving, language, asserting ourself and asking for what we need in a regulated and appropriate way, not a screaming and a no and a stomping and a throwing. The problem is, is the prefrontal cortex is not done developing until we're around like 25, 26 years old. So when you're three, it's like really just starting to come online. It's not that well developed. Um, And not only is when it's fully active, not that well-developed. So even when your child is totally regulated and has full access to their prefrontal cortex, there's a pretty low ceiling. But it also goes offline very easily because the prefrontal cortex really kind of shuts off when a child is having a threat response, when their amygdala, which is their threat detector, kind of pulls the fire alarm. And again, that's a very subjective fire alarm. So It might go off for something that you and I as parents might not have any rational expectation for that to set off the fire alarm, like, you know, peeling the banana. But if you peel the banana when your three-year-old really wanted to peel the banana themselves, you all can... This is what a this is what a threat response looks like, because we all know what that it's it's a meltdown because they wanted to do it their way and you did it wrong. And the amygdala kind of pulls the fire alarm and the prefrontal cortex goes offline. So now they're not able to say, 
they're not even able to say, you did that the way I didn't like it and I want a different banana. All they can do is just scream and kick at that moment. Yeah. I mean, I think those are the examples of, you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense to us, right? It's that sort of feeling of this is illogical from the parent. And I think that's when we sort of have to check ourselves a little and say like, "Mm, this is, we're not in logical land here, right? It's okay. We're not in logical land, you know? And I, and I think the other thing that you said that I think is really important to touch upon, particularly it's primed in my mind because of this season is your kid might have some vulnerabilities to having these episodes, right? So like being sick, right? Or just about to be sick, coming online to being sick, you know, feeling a little crummy. Maybe you don't even know that they're sick yet. And you're seeing more of these behaviors. You're seeing much more extreme reactions or they're tired or they're hungry. So it is important that we also take those sort of systemic things in mind when we're looking at these reactions, just like you're saying, the science behind it will show you if you have even a little bit of a physiological vulnerability like that, your brain's going to go offline even faster. So you might be seeing that, you know, this season, it's been really hard. Kids are sick a lot. We're getting back into routines and we might even see like sort of more peaks in those three major kind of behaviors. Yeah. And even when it's like, there's definitely that piece of like, what's our physiological state? How vulnerable are we? You know, do we miss a nap? Or we maybe also at three, you might be weaning off of naps. So there's also that kind of time where it's, there's just a lot of more um, emotions. And it's interesting because it doesn't just mean that they have more tantrums. I think what, what this mom was mentioning very specifically is like the the defiance and the attitude, right? So it's not always just meltdowns and tantrums, um, though there is a lot of that too. But I think there's also a lot of like, I want to own my autonomy. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to do that. I want to do it. And I want to do it in a way that is probably inefficient and incorrect and messy and loud. And so we as parents understandably get very frustrated because I think there are there are times where we get the resistance where perhaps we can slow down and perhaps we can let them tie their shoe 15 different times before they finally say, okay, you can do it. But there's a lot of times often when we need to go or there's a sense of urgency on our part or something just needs to happen a little bit more swiftly and we cannot wait for them to do it themselves or you know, we're not, we can't have a 20 minute fight to get out the door in the morning. So I think we, there's a piece of that too, just to validate how frustrating this is. Like what can parents do when it's like, we could talk a little bit about what we can do when there's time, because I do think that's important to find Mm -hmm. ways to allow for this autonomy. I also think we have to find ways to balance that out because sometimes we're going to have to say, I know you don't want me to do that. I know you want to do this or I know you don't want me to do this, but we have to do this. So I'm going to do it now and sort of tolerate the, the emotions that are going to come from that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like two parts of this, right? Like we've talked, you've talked a little bit about this developmentally appropriate autonomy, which is really important. And I think the other side of that, which is, you know, we want to bring on board and slowly start to integrate is we also have to build tolerance to doing unfun things. And we have to sort of teach that we have to teach tolerating the no and tolerating that we have to do that. Right. And, and, you know, 
in our sort of sort of how we approach things, we think of doing that in different ways, right? Like we always want our children to um, learn about themselves, right? So we start with labeling that feeling, just like you just mentioned in your example, right? I know you really don't want to do that. And you validate that. You label it. That makes you feel really upset, angry. And then we say, and I, I get that. Nobody wants to do things they don't want to do. or It's hard to not do the, it the way you want it, right? But then we say, you move on, sort of like you say, you know, then we say, oh, but we still have to get to school on time. So I'm going to help you go to school. I know you can handle that, right? So I think that that's the piece that is the building of the tolerance of the other side of autonomy. You know, it's exactly what we do as an adult is, you know, we might not want to go to work, but we tolerate it and we have to go to work that day. Right. So we want to mm-hmm. teach those two things that are happening sort of on the opposite sides of the same coin. Yes. And I think to complement that, right, there has to be that boundaries and predictable follow through and in, in a warm validating way, you don't have to, you know, sometimes we yell at our kids when this happens. That's typical and normal and we lose our, you know, we lose it sometimes. That's okay. But the most effective strategy to help move a kid through it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't lose it because they might get really upset when we say, I'm going to put your shoes on now, or I'm going to put your shoes on when we get in the car. Sometimes I do. That's actually a don't underestimate the value of a car seat <laughs> when you're strapped in. It's a lot easier to get those shoes on. So a lot of times I don't have power struggles with my kids over shoes. If they don't want to put them on, I say, fine, don't wear your shoes. I'll put them on when we get in the car. And then when they are strapped in and we get to where we're going and they are captive audience, I put their shoes on. Well, I love that. Done with it. By then they also have forgotten that they didn't want to put their shoes on. So it's not as big of an issue. Yeah, I love that. Because I think like one of the things I always, always say to parents, and I think it it's like, it seems simple, but it may be, it's impactful is you're not a bad parent if you give your child an out, right? Like you help them save face. And yes. that's actually a really important quality. And, and sometimes we, we regress a little in our parenting, like we might use a little distraction, like we did with our top two year old. Like we're like, oh, look, shiny object over here as we get out the door. So we try to help them save face instead of digging into, well, you said no, and let, let's talk about that. And, you know, like, you know, we really get an, engaged in that power struggle. You know, I think it's so important to save face and to say, to sort of help them with that by either using a little distraction or ushering them through it a little quicker. Or just like you said, I think it's a great idea to say, like, that's not a power struggle. I need to put your shoes on in the car. That's great. Let's go. And just like you're saying, that that helps them save face, right? You're not digging in right then. And the iron is cold. By the time you ask they need to put their shoes on, it's okay. It's colder then. It's not, there's not so much heat in the relationship or in the dynamic at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a good, important point. This idea that our kids, like viewing your kid as a whole human being with these same like drives and motivations that we have, like helps, I think with that compassion, right? If I make my kid feel like they don't have any control or any power because I've just you know, slayed, laid the gauntlet down and said, oh, this is not happening today. You know, there's a pretty good chance they're going to dig in harder because mm-hmm. now they feel small and they don't want to feel small. We like to feel, we like to feel big. We like to feel seen. Um, we like to feel like we have autonomy. And when we, when we feel like that's taken away from us, we tend to dig in harder. Um, so this is like the gasoline for most power struggles. And that's not to say that we have to like 
that we can never pick. Like sometimes we have to have the power struggle and we have to sort of assert our authority for sure. But I also think we can be creative and doesn't we don't have to win it all the time in order to maintain our authority. And I think some parents get a little tripped up because they think if, they, if they've if they set a limit and then they back down that they've undermined their authority. And I think how you back down from a limit is very important, right? Throwing your hands up and being like, oh, fine, forget it. You know what? You do it yourself. I can't handle this anymore is very different than, you know what? I realize this is this is too hard right now. I'm going to I'm going to change my mind and we're going to do this. We'll put the shoes on later. And so it's like you're still deciding how the pivot is going to go versus your child feeling all of a sudden like they're way too powerful because they they won the battle but in a really icky way. Yeah, I mean I and I think it's attunement right then, right? Like you're looking to help your child sort of get into a better headspace, right? So you're looking to say, okay, well, maybe the red shoes today. Oh, I can distract you with a little bit over here. And and that does really help sort of diffuse the interaction without totally avoiding, you know, that it, with helping getting out of that power struggle, but sort of not avoiding the teaching moment. Because as we talk about, you know, those hot moments aren't teaching moments, right? They're not a time when we want to engage in that kind of learning experience for a child because they're so activated. They're so in that, you know, emergency brain type of place. They're not in, as you said earlier, in that prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking center, right? So it's okay to sort of skip over a little bit of that just to get to a calmer place so that then maybe you do revisit. And we can talk a little bit more about maybe what you do in the aftermath, um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, in the moment we're going to validate, we're going to name the feeling, we're going to follow through on what the limit is or redirect or, you know, use some type of like strategy to move their focus off of the power struggle. Um, And we're going to also kind of in our own parent mind be deciding how big of an issue is this that I want to do? How important is this? Is it a safety issue? Then I'm going to have to hold the limit. Is it a move them through the schedule of the day issue that I'm going to have to hold the limit? Is it, you know, about health or cleanliness or, you know, something that is like definitely unequivocally my job has to happen? Then yes, we're going to hold the limit. If it's not, if it's like, I don't want to put my jacket on and so you're going to be cold. There's like these natural consequences that'll happen that you don't have to be the person that convinces them (laughs) they'll learn it that way, then like let it go. Um, And even if you've set a limit, you can change your mind without necessarily kind of throwing up your hands in defeat and feeling as though you don't have, you've lost or undermined your authority. But then outside of the moment, like you were saying, I think afterwards you can do things like a debrief where you can go review with your kid what happened when they're calm, when they're relaxed, when they're connected. I like to do it like when I'm reading books with my kids at night, I go back and say, hey, this morning was really tough getting out of the house. That didn't feel good, did it? Huh? Okay. What, what happened? What could we do differently? And so you're doing some collaborative problem solving. With a three-year-old, you're going to be offering a lot of the solutions, not them. Um, with older kids, I think they can come up with some solutions on their own for how to make it better next time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then I also think there's a lot of stuff that we do like kind of before the heat of the moment or before these power struggles as a more of like prophylactic preventative measures. Do you have any ideas for how we could kind of reduce the instances of the power struggles from the first place? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. We think of like kids in this developmental stage as wanting so much autonomy, that's actually kind of a little scary sometimes, right? Like it's a little bit of a push and pull. You want your independence, but like, oof, then you're really on your own. So I, I always think it's really nice during this developmental stage to sort of have like one-on-one time with each parent or each kid. I think it's a little bit of a fill me up kind of thing. It's an autonomous thing, if, especially if you have other siblings in the mix, which might be contributing to some of this going on. You know, it's really nice to also have a little bit of a autonomous big kid activity with your parent that you've not done before. Right. I think that that helps to really create, um, you know, like really solidify the attachment and really create a new shape of this autonomy and this growth and give it a new frame. And I think doing that in a routinized way is always, you know, any traditions or routines is a great way to do that with kids. So maybe you think of a new little tiny thing that you can insert into your schedule, like, you know, you go and your child now goes with you grocery shopping or, and they're now the ones who get to push the cart or, you know, there's some stuff like that that gives them a little bit more of autonomy, but in a positive connected relationship way that a, that allows you to be able to say like, Hey, you can also be autonomous in this way that's connected to me. And it feels good, right? It's not just a rebellion or sort of what your, you know, your listener was saying, like a, an obstinate way. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think too, like giving a lot of authentic choice is helpful. Like, cause that's something that we can sprinkle in throughout the day and it might feel very trivial to us, but these decisions are important to kids. Like in a good example of an authentic choice. And by the way, when I say authentic choice, I mean, pre-selected options chosen by you presented as like a multiple choice and either of the options are acceptable to you. So it feels like the child is making a choice, and they are, but you are already kind of containing that choice in a way that works for you. Um, so it's, and it's not open-ended. It's sort of closed-ended, which is helpful for decision-making because for little kids, decision-making is hard. So if you say, what color plate do you want versus do you want the blue plate or the green plate? that's a much more accessible choice for them to make. And it feels very good because it's easy. It's an easy win for them. They feel good because they got to pick something, but they also feel good because the choice was actually cognitively not that challenging for them to make. Um, I think sometimes we don't understand, we underestimate how overwhelming an open-ended choice can be for a three-year-old. And so it can actually cause a little bit of stress for them. And they're not going to articulate that. They're just going to store it in their body until it comes out later. And so I like authentic choices. Like, do you want green beans or green beans or peas with your chicken tonight? Or do you want, you know, the, you know, the Paw Patrol or the fire truck pajamas? These are things that are, and I would sprinkle these in as much as possible especially if you are getting a lot of power struggles and a lot of sort of defiance and willfulness 
because I really think that is a bid for feeling autonomous and not feeling as though that need is being met. And that frustration, that sense of feeling thwarted is probably leading to a lot of the dysregulated behaviors. So we can soften that by by sort of filling up that sense of autonomy as much as we can by by giving lots of choices, like you said, giving lots of small jobs and responsibilities, lots of sort of special time with us. These are all really great ideas. Yeah, I think it's so important to make it, you know, a responsibility or a something that's a yes. We say no all day. We say, no, don't do that. No, do that. You know, you can't do this, you know, and I think it's a great thing for us as parents, as an exercise to think about what we can say yes to, right. Or how we can frame it as a yes, you know, mm-hmm. and I think giving those, it's, it, I think it, it's such an important point to say limited structured options, right. That's a really helpful thing. Like it's even hard for adults to make open-ended you know, decisions. So I think it's a really great thing to structure it, even for as children get older, right? Giving them two options to choose from that you think are appropriate really does help them learn how to make their own decisions going forward. And then again, feel more autonomous. Yeah. And another thing too, that's sort of similar to the authentic choice kind of thing is, um, asking them to solve a problem. So for example, if my kid's cup is right on the edge of the counter, right on the edge of the table. And instead of me being like, hey, Sadie, your cup is on the table. It's going to fall. Move, you know, move your cup. You're going to bump it off the table. I might say to her, I might get close. So I'm not like calling across the room, but I might get close to her. I might say in a quiet voice, make eye contact and say, hey, Sadie, your water cup is right here by the edge. What might happen if you bump it? And then she'll probably say, oh, it will spill or, oh, it'll make a mess. And then I might say, hmm, what can we do? And I guarantee you, she is going to move the cup on her own. So you're, you're getting them like almost all the way to the finish line and then they're crossing it themselves with the solution to the problem. And that feels so good to little kids because they feel really like really powerful there and really, you know, and, and really like creative and seen. I I think that's a really great point. And I also think like bringing them almost there to the finish line is, is such an important piece because it does build that competency, but also, you know, a lot of our parents that are probably, you know, listening to this have three-year-olds, but they probably have little, um, another little kid right behind. And there's also opportunities to help the, your three-year-old sort of gain some autonomy by helping your little sibling, right? Like that's another mm-hmm. way. And I love the way you say, like, bring it to the end though, because you don't want them to do the whole thing, right? Zero to the end finish line is just, it's too big of a, a task, but you can help, you know, help them. How do they help their, their younger sibling play with a toy or build a tower? And you can sort of help set that up and they get to be the teacher in that situation. They Mm -hmm. get to be the yes person. They get to be the person who gives a little bit of that structure. It's just another way of building autonomy. Like as, as you mentioned, and like sort of sprinkling those opportunities throughout the day and into their natural lives, right? It's so important that these are things that happen day to day and in your normal routine. And we sort of just 
enhance those things that are already happening. So it doesn't feel so overwhelming as a parent to like do more, do more. We can really refine what's happening in the interactions that are already occurring. I think that is so important, right? Don't add 10 more things to your to-do list to fill your kid's bucket. Fill your kid's bucket with 10 things you're already doing. Just include them in the process so yep. that you are you are very much being efficient with your efforts because it's not shortchanging them. They want to fold socks with you. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to put the forks on the table. This is something that gives them a huge boost of confidence and belonging and ownership over something. And when we meet that biological drive for autonomy in ways that are productive and collaborative and help the family flow, we will see less extreme demands for autonomy in ways that interrupt the family flow. So the kids need to feel autonomous. They need to feel powerful. They need to feel like they have agency. If they're not getting it in ways that work with the family, they will demand it in ways that don't work with the family. So I think if we just see that resistance as a sign that, hey, my kid's developing totally on track. This is part of their personality development, their sense of self. It's important it's feeling kind of icky right now. So how do I kind of counterbalance it with things that would feel better, but still meet that drive? Because our kids have these biological drives and we, we need, they need them. <laughs> That's how we develop. This is part of human development. Um, so work with your kid's brain and body and biological hardwiring. Work with it by understanding what it's telling you and you will have a lot less friction. Yeah, I think that, and I think you're, you're right. I think like staying in the moment is really important. I think what we, what I hear, you know, in our practice and, and with in clinical situations or it's so important to not go too far ahead. Oh, my kid is going to be a disaster forever. Right. Or they're going to be a horrible teenager. I can't handle this. Right. I think it's so important to keep it where it is. This is just like we've been saying, a developmentally appropriate thing. It doesn't mean anything about the future of your child or how they might choose their plate going forward, right? This is really something that's happening in the here and now. And I always try to encourage parents to not get too worried about future-oriented behaviors based on this three-year-old developmental trajectory. It's going to come and you know what? It's also going to end. And Mm -hmm. these are just ways that we can sort of smooth it along. And I love the way you say like, fill up that autonomy bucket, right? Like, let's see if we can do that in a positive way as much as we can and balance that stuff out. But we're still going to see some of the other uh, obstinance and the defiance and that type of Mm -hmm. thing. And and for us as parents, it's really, all right, self-talk, this is what's supposed to happen. I'm going to build my tolerance to this, just like I want them to build their tolerance to having to do things they don't want to do. And, and I think that that's really important. And if we stay in that moment and not get too wrapped up in making it bigger than it is, then I think that can be really helpful as well. Yeah. And that brings me to this, like, you know, listen, I zero judgment to any parent who has, you know, called their kid a three-nager or, or a terrible two, right? But if you notice that you are frequently using kind of pejorative labels for our kids that are totally, you know, societally passed down to us, I'm not, this is very common to call our kids this, and I'm not 
shaming anyone who uses those terms. But if you can kind of intentionally notice when you're saying things negatively about your kid or you're framing their behavior in a really negative way out loud in front of them or even just internally to yourself, you might notice that it can create a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm-hmm. right? Because how we think about our kids dictates in a big way how we then feel and how we then behave. And so when I have my child and if my child's behaving in a way that's frustrating to me and I say, oh my God, there's such a three-nager. This is so annoying. I'm very likely to feel annoyed, frustrated, angry, irritated. And I'm going to show up behaviorally in a way that reflects that probably. But if I can check myself and say, oh, wait, hold on. This is developmentally appropriate. This is a sign that they're trying to figure something out. It's a pretty tricky, tricky moment for them. I don't really love the way this feels either, but I can see what's happening here. That's going to drastically shift my emotional reaction. I might feel mildly frustrated. I also might feel curious. I might feel compassionate for them. I might feel more neutral at best, you know, maybe just neutral, but that's going to inform how I then show up in my parenting and how much access I have to my like most effective parenting tools. And so I just, you know, just as a friendly reminder that like the way we talk about our kids either to ourselves and certainly in front of them can really decide what path comes next. So, you know, Try shifting the language that you use and thinking of it less as like a negative label versus uh, what's happening in this moment. Can I describe the behavior? Can I describe the feeling, not the kid? Um, and I think that that will help us all feel less frustrated in the moment as well. And I think sort of to bring that full circle, it keeps us in our prefrontal cortex, right? Yeah. I think that keeps us in our part of our brain that helps us self-regulate and exactly what you're saying, utilize our most effective parenting tools instead of going into our emotion brain and, you know, sort of getting in, staying in that place and staying in that more disorganized place. If we can really change that narrative, it is a little bit of a self-soothing, right? It really sort of calms our system and allows us to stay in that prefrontal cortex, which helps us plan and organize and self-regulate and use our best tools that we have available to us. Yeah, I love it. Well, I think we covered all the things that we wanted to cover to answer this question. If anyone has more questions and you want to submit a question for us to answer on the podcast, you can DM me at Dr. Sarah Bren on Instagram, or you can email me at info at drsarahbren.com. And we will have another question for you guys soon. Thanks for coming on, Em. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about a parenting group that I'm running this month for parents in New York State. Over many years of treating patients and offering parenting support, I've noticed some common themes emerge. Much of my one-on-one therapy and parenting support consists of helping parents set developmentally appropriate expectations, learn how to accurately decipher their child's cues, and understand how to work with their child's brain and body and nervous system to make parenting easier. This eight-week group, ideal for parents of two to seven-year-olds, will meet virtually with me for one hour every week to learn strategies for supporting your child's emotional, social, and cognitive development, and to have a chance to ask questions and address the specific issues you are working through with your own child and family. 
If you're interested in participating in this group, email me at sarah at drsarahbren.com or go to upsurebren.com forward slash contact to schedule a free 15-minute assessment call with me to see if it would be a good fit for you. Thanks for listening and don't be a stranger.